Unity is a really powerful thing. What explains why 25-year-olds and 75-year-olds who dress differently, listen to different music, grew up in different cities, states, even nations, have differing political views, different walks of life, speak different languages, even have different skin colors? What explains why people so different would willingly meet in Blacksburg almost every Saturday? And in Charlottesville, Athens, Baton Rouge, and in honor of Colonel Saul and Madame Saul, Tuscaloosa, as much as it hurts to say it. How is it that people who've never met before in a matter of moments are high-fiving one another, chanting the same words with passion and delight, singing and swaying together at the fourth quarter signal with their cell phones? Never met before. An instant bond. Because unity is a mysteriously powerful thing. It might be driven by a love for football, or a love for the alma mater, or simply a longing to be part of something that's bigger than yourself. Everybody wants to be part of something big, something victorious, something transcendent. You know, that's just, it's in us to want that. Unity is incredibly powerful. I want you to think about that this morning. But it's also notoriously elusive. It's difficult to find it and sustain it. It would be really nice if unity was, it just came more naturally to us. Um, it'd be nice if we could find it and keep it. Whether we're talking about a corporate merger or in a marriage or in a conversation with somebody, or a college football game. It's really hard to sustain unity. And it's hard to sustain unity because each of us have competing interests and desires. And when those desires are not met, we're no fun. When those desires are not met, when our competing desires begin to collide, things get ugly fast. That is what makes Jesus' prayer in John 17 outrageous. I mean, it is not what we expected. It's, it's crazy for me to read in the Bible, Jesus is praying, listen to this, Jesus is praying for perfect unity. How does he pray for perfect unity? Knowing what he knows about us. Knowing what he knows about his, his disciples who are notoriously making mistakes, notoriously thinking about themselves. Basically, knuckle, knuckleheads, right? We've been, we've, been, we've been calling the disciples knuckleheads during this series, and it's because that's who we are. That's who we are. How does he pray for perfect unity? He prays that they will experience perfect unity. Let me give you a little bit of context here in John 17. So if you're joining us uh, for the first time or in the last week or two, we're moving through John's gospel and we're in John 17. And John 17 is called a number of things. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the end of the farewell discourse. So he's saying goodbye to his disciples. Uh, that's called the farewell discourse. 
And we've been in that for some time. And at the end of that, he prays a lengthy prayer. There's no other place in the Bible where we find something like this. Some people call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Others call it the prayer of consecration. Um, from chapter 17, verse 1, through the end of the chapter, he's praying. Jesus prays first for himself, consecrates himself to the Father. Then he prays secondly for his disciples. And we just read about that. And then he prays third, which picks up in verse 20, and that's where we are today. We're going to kind of work from the back forward in this. We'll come back next week and the following weeks to finish out 17. But today we're in chapter 17, verse 20. And, and in verse 20 through the end of the chapter, he's praying for all. He's praying for us, for all who will believe based on the word of the first disciples. He's praying for the church. And Jesus prays for his church. He prays for us. He prays for every local expression of his body. He prays for the universal church, but he's, he's also praying for us, for the local expression of his body. And he prays for unity, not unity for the sake of unity, not just any kind of unity. Jesus prays for unity. And I want to draw that out this morning and help you think through this passage as he prays for four distinct things. Listen to this. The unity for which Jesus prays, he, he prays for us to hold fast to the gospel. This unity for which he prays, it, it holds fast to the gospel. It deepens by love. It joins the mission of God and is perfected in the church. So let's think about, let's think about it would be really easy to think that Jesus just prays for unity sort of generically in a kind of fuzzy way, but he doesn't pray that way. He prays for four distinct aspects of unity. Number one, he prays for unity that holds fast to the apostolic gospel. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. Those who will believe in me through the word of these disciples. In order for the gospel to spread through the word of the original disciples, they would need to remain true to Jesus' message. If something gets distorted early on, the word doesn't spread with integrity. Jesus prays first. This is why he prayed for them before he prayed for us. He prayed for them first before he prayed for us so that the integrity of the apostolic gospel would be sustained. I'm not asking just for these disciples only, but for all who will believe in me through their word. The unity that Jesus is praying for is a unity. Uh, Jude describes it this way, Jude 3. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered uh, by, from Jesus to the disciples and from, from the apostles to the rest of the church. The faith that was once, once for all delivered. Not delivered several times, but once for all fully and finally expressed. The apostolic gospel is not changing ever. 2,000 years later, same, simple, straightforward gospel message of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not praying for generic unity, like a kind of unity, unity that would be found in the lowest common denominator. 
Christian unity is centered on Jesus Christ and his saving work. It's made available to all who will embrace it and submit to it. John's written his gospel for this very purpose, right? John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, I've written these things that you might believe, and and in believing that you might have life, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that in believing that, you would have life in his name, that he would lay a claim on your life as the Son of God that would redefine your life. we should probably just take a brief moment and contrast some other gospels to the apostolic gospel because this helps me a lot. I don't know if it helps you, but it often helps me to know what something is not so that I can more clearly see what the right thing is. And so let me just try to tease out a little bit what what the gospel is not, and maybe that will help us to see what the gospel is. First of all, other gospels that are competing for the gospel of Christ today Um, There's a therapeutic gospel out there, and a therapeutic gospel says, sin robs me of my sense of self-worth and my potential as an individual, so Jesus' job is to help me reach my full potential. The church, therefore, is about helping me find personal happiness. That's another gospel. There's some element of truth in there. You could hear it because the gospel is helping us to rediscover who we are. But it's really distorted in a therapeutic gospel. A second gospel that's competing with the apostolic gospel these days is a moralist gospel, which basically says that that sin is essentially a failure to keep rules and regulations. That might be rules and regulations inside the church. It might be rules and regulations outside the church. Therefore, the purpose of Christ's death would be to make it possible for me to be a better rule follower. Jesus helps me to be a better rule follower, and redemption comes through willpower and right living. That, that is a very real thing for many people. We struggle with this. But the heart of the gospel is not improving your self-righteousness. It's recognizing the emptiness of your self-righteousness. Your own willpower, your own ability to fix things. A third uh, competing gospel is an activist gospel. This would be uh, a gospel that says sin is mostly felt in social contexts like crime, poverty, racism, abortion, human trafficking, and a thousand other problems in this world, very real problems. Um, Therefore, the kingdom of God, in this reading, the kingdom of God is advanced through political change, cultural renewal, and social projects. Again, some truth in there for sure, but not the heart of the gospel. There's a fourth one that I think I'll just make up as I go along. And, and I'm going to say this because it's affected every single one of us. Can I, will you trust me for a minute to be your pastor? Just trust me for a moment and, and let me, if you can, let me in for just a second. There's a consumer gospel out there that's affected every single one of us. And a consumer gospel says... This thing is mostly about me. 
Christianity is centered on me. The church is centered on me. The customer's always right. And the customer's always right has so permeated our society. And we like to be on the customer's always right side of things. Where they give us an extra thing and they give us some free fries because they missed our order. And, and they, you know, we like that. And it's fed and it's just, it's come into the church. Listen, please hear me. And, and, and I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this from the right heart. We are consumers at heart. But the gospel does not call us to be consumers. Jesus is not calling me to be a consumer. He's calling me to give my life away. And there's a huge difference. And some of us, some of us are struggling. And listen, when you're in a consumer mentality, guess what happens to you in the life of the church? If you have a consumer gospel mentality in the life of the church, guess what happens? You see everything that's wrong. You think everything that should be changed. You see, you have problems and you become critical. You become critical at every layer. You, you, you get critical with your pastor. You get critical of your pastoral team. You get critical of your Bible study class. You get critical of your community group. You get critical of the finances. You get critical of the committees. You get critical of everything. Because if you live long enough in a consumer world like we live, it just becomes part of your, it's in your bloodstream. And you don't even know what's happening to you. And guess what it does to the church? It pulls the church in a thousand fragmented directions. Because we all have a thousand fragmented desires. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to think about how your life in the body could be united and, 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 and fueled by and energized by the true apostolic, the true apostolic gospel which is that Jesus Christ is the son of, God, son of God. He's come to lay a claim on your life, and when you follow him, everything else falls into place. When you submit to his lordship, everything else starts to get a different shape. When you love him more than anything else in the world, everything else begins to become beautiful again. Perfect unity that Jesus is praying for Guess where it starts? It doesn't start with finding the lowest common theological denominator. It doesn't start with just, it, perfect unity starts with Jesus, the Son of God. And the claim he's laid on our life, let's follow him together. That's what John's writing about in his gospel. Here's the second thing. This unity that Jesus is praying for deepens. This is the beauty of it. It doesn't just start in direct connection to Jesus, but it deepens by joyful, sacrificial love. The unity for which he prays is a unity of delight. It's the love of God. Remember, it is the love of God that drives this whole thing called salvation. The love of God is driving this whole program where Jesus, the Son of God, well, where the Son of God is going to become Jesus, who is the Christ, and he's going to come from the Father to earth, live and dwell among us, rescue us through a perfect sinless life given on our behalf on the cross, and then rise again. Right? This whole thing is driven by love. Look at verse 23. God's delight in verse 23. God's delight is what motivated the Father to send the Son. Or verse 24, 
The son shares the desire. Look at that desire language. Father, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me would be with us and see your glory. I long for that. I desire that, Jesus says. I love that. That's why I'm here. The love of God is driving things here. The same delight that the Father and the Son share, this new collection of people called the church are supposed to be energized by. We're supposed to be energized by the same love of God have you, have you delighted in anyone recently? This is going to sound like a weird question, but I'm, I'm going to put it that way. So have you delighted in anyone recently? Just, just delighted at, like just got right there in front of them, in front of their face, and delighted in someone else face to face, with your eyes and with your face. Purposefully expressing delight and blessing, aiming that blessing right into someone else's face. Have you, have you done that recently? Have you, have you delighted in someone recently? I mean, it's been a busy week. I'm just asking. Psalm 16 in verse 3 says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in, in whom is all my delight. David, King David writes in Psalm 16, the saints who are in the land, all the people who love God and have been consecrated to him, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, he says. I, I was just thinking about that. What would it have been like? Now, you think about this. If you know your scriptures well, King David is an amazing figure. King David is like a magnanimous figure. Fully human, yes, but he's still an amazing. What would it have been like what would it have been like to be on the receiving end of King David's face-to-face -face delight? What would that have been like? What would it have been like if the king of Israel just looked at you right in the face and delighted in you? What would that have done to a young Palestinian boy who was 14 years old? It would have stopped him in his tracks. To be on the receiving end of someone's genuine affection and interest. Just think about that for a minute. What would it be like to be on the receiving end of an amazing king's, like, I like you. I, I like you. I delight in you. I'm interested in you. What would that have been like? If you are a follower of Jesus, listen to this. If you're a follower of Jesus and the grace of God lives in your heart and soul, the very same thing that David's talking about in Psalm 16 is that's possible for you to give to someone else. Because when the mercy of God and the grace of God is alive in you, you can delight in another person freely, lovingly, genuinely, with no strings attached. You're just... You're seeing a person not for who they were, not for all their brokenness, not for everything that they've done wrong. You're, just, you're seeing for like who they could become, who they could be. That is gospel delight. That's what deepens unity among people. That's what deepens relationship between people. 
genuinely delighting in one another. If you, you know, we talk about love, and if you want to, there are different definitions for love, and we're going to talk more about that, uh, maybe even a little bit tonight. But here's a simple definition, a simple definition for you about love, a simple biblical definition for you. What is love? It's to delight in someone, to send them a message that you really enjoy them. And that promotes unity. And i got to figure out where I am in my notes. I've completely lost my place. Um, that, that promotes unity, and it, and it transforms the church. And tonight, as we look at our, uh, we're going to roll out our annual ministry plan tonight, and you'll get one of these uh, and I would love to encourage you to come, even if you're not a member and you're considering membership tonight, you should come to our member meeting. Tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to love one another. And serve one another. And gather together. I'm kind of clipping through these on the slide. Um, hopefully, we'll get one of those. Up. There we go. Love one another and serve one another and gather together. So what's one of the best ways to delight in someone? By simply being with them. And that's what the church, church does. The church gathers. And, and it's, it's more important. Yeah, no, it's just as important. It's just as important for you as it is for us, for us to be together. So tonight, I do want to invite you in our annual member meeting. We're gathering together. We're trying to set our direction for who we are as a church family. Please take a few minutes and be with us tonight uh, and, and be part of that process as we gather with one another. Unity deepens by love that, 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 that's serving one another, that's gathering together, that forgives one another, that forgives one another. We should ask God this year, that's what we're going to do, we're going to ask God this year to deepen our love for one another in all these different ways. And Pastor Chip's going to talk a little bit about that in that segment tonight when we come back. Jesus sacrificed his life to bring us together. Do you agree with that? Jesus sacrificed his life to bring us together. How it must grieve him when petty differences divide us. Let's ask God this year to unite us as his people. Here's the third thing that, that Jesus prays for. Number one, hold fast to the apostolic, apostolic gospel. Number two, he prays for a unity that deepens by delight, by joyful, sacrificial love. Third, he, he, a, a unity that joins the mission of God. He's praying for that. He prayed for that. The prayer of John 17 has this, has this strong missional current. Uh, it's like a riptide pulling everything out to sea with it. it it's, it's like a, a tide pulling everything in one direction. This whole prayer, it pulls toward the mission of God. So in verses 1 through 5, he prays for and consecrates himself for the mission. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his present disciples and uh, to whom he's entrusting the mission. And here in today's passage, he's praying for all the disciples who are yet to believe. That includes us, the church. And what does he pray for us? Look at verse 21 and the end of verse 21. He's praying for us that we might be one so that, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. 
so that people who have not yet believed, he's praying for a unity that will help us take the gospel to those who have not yet believed. Same exact line, verse 23, end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you've sent me and love them as you love me. The church of Jesus Christ, the true church, the united church, the church of Jesus Christ will always have an undaunted commitment to the mission of God to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Go and make disciples to all nations. That is what Jesus is praying for. He's praying that our Uh, He's praying that our love for one another and our unity with God and who he is and what Christ has done in and through uh, his own life to bring us together, that that we might take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Go to Manchester in South Richmond. Go to Vega Baja, Puerto Rico. Go to the river people of East Asia and lead them out of spiritual darkness, blinding darkness, This unity joins in the mission of God. We're going to talk more about this in the coming days, but but glory, we'll come back to this passage, the glory of God that's going on here, it begins and ends. You'll notice this in chapter 17, verse 1, glorify your son that the the hour has come for your son's glory to be put on display. We're going to come back to the glory of God. It's the glory of God that fuels the mission of God. And... We're going to hit that in a couple weeks. All right, let me go to the fourth thing, and, and, we'll, and we'll land there. Perfect unity. The final thing. This is, this is the thing that got my attention. This is just outrageous. Jesus is praying for perfect unity. That is hard to imagine, isn't it? Perfect unity. Look at verse 23 again. I in them and you in me so that they may become perfectly one. Now, no matter what your translation is, I'm reading from the ESV and it says perfectly one. No matter what your translation is, if you've got a good translation, it's going to say something like perfectly one. It's going to have a a sense of completeness, a full completion. Uh, This is a fascinating thought that Jesus would pray this way, that all of his church, all of his disciples downstream from the first, that they might become perfectly one. (laughs) There's just no way. There's no way that, I mean, think about Think about our local church alone, not to mention the local churches that are just a few minutes from here and then a few hours from here and all over the state of Virginia and all over America and all over the world. How many competing desires and different perspectives and voices and interests, so many of them genuinely good ideas. How can he be praying for perfect unity? What is he talking about? So I want to throw out something that I think will help us with this. I don't think he's talking about voting on the church budget. I don't think he's talking about phase two of renovate. I don't think he's talking about how many committees we should have. I don't think Jesus is praying for all of the churches that will be established subsequent to the first disciples. I don't think he's praying for that kind of unity. Let's call that decisional unity. Voting unity. I don't think that's what he's praying for. How on earth could that be affected? 
in terms of perfect unity. I think what Jesus is praying for is relational unity. Now, relational unity may affect decisional unity. In fact, I think it will, but, but that's not what he's praying for. I think Jesus is praying for relational unity, not voting unity, not decisional unity, not trellis kind of unity. He's talking about vine unity. He's talking about relational oneness, about oneness as a family. He's talking about, he's praying for a discovery of a new identity in God and in one another as his family. He's praying that would be brought to completion and perfection so that every time someone else comes into the family of God, so that every time someone else trusts in Jesus Christ, the family of God is being perfected, completed, expanding. And he's praying for full expansion and ultimate perfection in that sense. He's praying for relational unity. It's a breathtaking, one commentator wrote, it's a breathtaking vision of the love of God that sweeps us off of our feet and resources us to pursue unity in relationship with one another. It is a breathtaking vision of the love of God that sweeps us off of our feet and resources us to pursue unity in relationship. Relational unity is far more important. Listen, if you are married, you have a family, you have grandchildren, you understand this, relational unity is far more important than decisional unity. Ephesians 2.12 says, remember, remember you were once separated from Christ. Remember, you were once separated from God and from one another, but he has reconciled you to himself and brought you in and made you one people. Remember that. Remember that relational unity is profoundly more important than decisional voting kind of unity. I don't think I've shared this with the larger group of our, of our, our gathered worship hour. I've shared it with a smaller group, but on Sunday night, but I don't think I've shared it with you guys yet. Um, think about relational unity for just a second. My dad is in the process, um, it's not a process, my dad is being reunited, it's a, a people thing. My dad is being reunited with his 34-year-old daughter who's been estranged and distanced for years. My half-sister, Allison, and there's been so much anger and hatred and brokenness in the relationship for, for just years. And he's been praying and praying and praying and writing long letters but not sending them. He wrote up on the top of one letter, do not send. <laughs> but he keeps rewriting them, praying them, asking God for help. He finally just sent a text message to her a few weeks back. And he said, because he'd been texting, he'd been writing, you know, he, he's been trying everything. He finally just sent her a text message, one sentence. Allison, I miss you. Dad. Just kept praying, 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 praying. That the next morning, he gets a response. I would love to meet with you and talk with you. 
at this point, she's not a believer. My dad is a believer. He's late in life with all sorts of consequences and brokenness in the trail of that. But grace is so powerfully at work. So I talked to him yesterday. Yeah, I'm going to try to hold this together. I talked to him yesterday, and he said, you're not going to believe this, but we had our second meeting, and I met her at 1 o'clock, and we met until 5.30 on a park bench. We never got up for four and a half hours. And then she said to me at 5.30, I'm getting hungry. Could we go get some dinner? And he's like, what the heck is happening here? Of course, let's go get some dinner. And he spent eight hours, more time in one day than he has spent probably in 15 years with her. Do you think when she responded to that text that he was concerned about where they would meet, what time they would meet, and the incidental details of the meeting place? Do you think for a moment he cared about that? He would have driven to the middle of the night to a Sitco station in North Georgia to meet with her. Why? Because relational unity is far more profound and significant than incidental decisions that though they might be important at some level, never rise to the importance of relational unity. And the Bible is all about relational unity. And Jesus is praying. Jesus is not praying that all of the churches that will ever be built will have the right color carpet. He doesn't care about that. He's praying for a deep and profound relational unity that will change the world through grace and through mercy. And that kind of unity is attainable through the gospel of Christ. When the world sees that kind of love, it's compelling. And when my half-sister Allison, when Allison says, when Allison sees that so many things that he, my father, wishes he could do differently. It just, it's just softening the hardness and the brokenness and the distance. That's what the gospel does. Would you pray with me? Lord, today we need to confess as a people that we have often, I have often, been focused on the wrong things. We confess to you, we have, we have wrongly attached ourselves and our hearts to so many incidentals. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to see with eyes of, of see with the Spirit's eyes, see with eyes of grace, see with eyes of wisdom and mercy and, and, and a profound sense of love. Help us to see the difference. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for, for wanting to receive more than we give. Forgive us for being consumers. Unbridled consumers. 
forgive us for thinking we could do this without you. And Lord, today, would you, in this confession, would you remind us that you alone can perfect this? That it is your church, it is your kingdom, it is your, what you are moving to your completion and your end. And we ask for your blessing. Lord, help us, bless, oh, how good and pleasant it is. Oh, how good and pleasant. Grant us the ability to delight in one another and to see unity in one another and, to, and, and for, for to be good and pleasant for us to dwell together in that kind of harmony. So, Lord, we pray for this year as we, as we think about our upcoming church year and who we are and what we want to be. Would you unite us for your glory, for the completion and the expansion of the gospel to all people? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.